No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. What makes a Carnival Cruise fun? That's up to you. Maybe it's a ride on boat, a roller coaster at sea, or a deep tissue massage at the spa. Creole-inspired cuisine at Emerald's Bistro to laid-back bites at Guy's Burger Joint. Excursions that take you from jungle adventures to beach days at Mahogany Bay and sunsets from the top deck. Long story short, no one does fun like Carnival. Carnival, choose fun. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama. Hi, this is Greg Young, and welcome to the Bowery Boys audio walking tour of the High Line. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Welcome to my little experiment here on the Bowery Boys, our very first walking tour. On our last episode, Tom and I presented a history of the High Line, that one-mile linear park situated atop abandoned elevated tracks along the west side. This time, I'll take you on a tour along the High Line itself. This will incorporate some history of the elevated tracks itself, but is more intended to be a tour of the surrounding neighborhoods. This is meant to be listened to as you walk along the High Line beginning at the park's southern entrance at Washington and Gansevoort Streets in the Meatpacking District. I have to apologize now to any listeners out there who don't live in New York, but save this show for a future visit to the city, or you can actually follow along on Google Maps. Now, you really should listen to episode 135. That's our History of the Highline episode. Listen to that first as a background to the structure itself. From there, you'll be ready to begin your walk. We'll head north, up the length of the High Line to 30th Street. We'll be making brief stops almost every time the High Line intersects with a cross street. And I'll direct you to sites to the east of the High Line, to the west, and in a couple cases, right above you. This will be an informal audio walking guide. I'll prompt you to the next stop and include a few seconds in between before speaking again, so there'll be no weird beeps or anything in your ears. To maximize this experience, you'll want to frequently pause and even rewind a bit. Take a leisurely walk along the park. Enjoy the scenery. I mean, after all, the High Line is an ideal place for people watching. And then just hit play again when you get to an intersecting street. But be careful. You don't want to walk into another pedestrian. Watch out for uneven pavement, the benches, and pieces of unusual artwork scattered throughout. You don't want to be that person who falls into a work of art. Also, as you pause to listen, it's recommended to pull over to the far left or the far right side to let other visitors pass on through. So when you're ready to go, meet me at the foot of the steps at the southern entrance of the High Line. That's at Gansevoort Street and Washington Street. When you're there, just queue up the podcast to this spot and let's go. Welcome to the High Line. You're standing at the southernmost point of the park and we're about to go up. But before we do, I want you to look across to the other side of Gansevoort Street at that tall beige building. You'll notice a patchwork green tiling along the second and third floors. 
The Highland was constructed in the 1930s as a way to distribute freight to the West Side's many factories and warehouses. But it didn't originally stop at Gansevoort. It continued south, along Washington Street, all the way to a freight terminal at Spring Street. With the decline of the West Side industries, portions of the elevated railroad were removed. The last portion, between Bank and Gansevoort Street, was only removed in 1991. In some cases, though, the tracks went through buildings, as in the case of the building you see before you, a structure that once housed the Manhattan Refrigeration Company. Track once ran right into the building at where that green area is. You can see other examples of invisible elevated train tracks further down on Washington Street at the corner of Bethune Street at the former Bell Telephone Laboratories. All right, it's time to start our journey. Let's climb the stairs and begin the walk north. Standing at the top of the stairs, the first thing obviously catching your attention right about now is the glass curtain Standard Hotel straddling the High Line. The Standard opened in 2009, built by Andre Balish, best known as the owner of the Chateau Marmont in Los Angeles. The gleaming Standard Hotel was designed with an obvious nod to modernist mid-century architect Le Corbusier. It may remind you a little bit of the United Nations building. Now, unless something exciting is happening in one of the windows up there, may I steer you over instead to a view west of the High Line? At the time of recording, there's construction work taking place on Gansevoort for the brand new home for the Whitney Museum. This construction site sits right next to a building called the Gansevoort Market Meat Center. In this area, 200 years ago, nervous New Yorkers built a fort during the events that eventually led to the War of 1812. The 22 Cannon Fort, which they of course never ended up using, was named in honor of brave Revolutionary War Colonel Peter Gansevoort. He's probably best known for the street that bears his name today, but he's got another proud distinction. Peter was the grandfather of Herman Melville, the author of Moby Dick. In the 1860s, Melville became New York's custom inspector. And in a poetic coincidence, worked in an office here at the foot of Gansevoort Street. Now head up a little bit north until you get to the intersection of the High Line and Little West Twelfth Street. As you stroll, take notice of the plants and birch trees that burst out from the latticework of original elevated track and concrete walkways. Along this tour, you'll be treated to 210 different species of plant life, most based upon the natural greenery that formed upon the High Line during its decades of abandonment. The first intersection of the High Line here is with Little West Twelfth Street, a street that suffers from the idiosyncrasies of the West Village's irregular grid-busting randomness. Regular West Twelfth Street crosses across Manhattan and abruptly turns at Greenwich Avenue. However, if it continued straight, plowing through the angled streets of Jane and Horatio Streets, it would end up meeting its little brother here. To the west, look back again at the Gansevoort Market Meat Center. You're looking at the few remaining vestiges of the meatpacking district's meatpacking industries. At the date of this recording, there are still signs for the London Meat Company and Milano's Italian Sausages. When this complex was built in 1950, construction workers unearthed the foundations of the original Fort Gansevoort right at this spot. Today, as most meatpacking industries have left this area, this is probably the closest you'll be getting to raw meat on this tour. Now continue underneath the Standard Hotel and get to the other side at West Thirteenth Street. Stand to the right, looking east. At this intersection of West Thirteenth Street, just over at the corner of Washington Street, you can probably see the tarnished neon sign of the tried and true old dive bar 
Hogs and Heifers, which opened in 1992 and stands defiant against the swanky boutiques and lounges that surround it. Hogs is notoriously known for its monstrous pile of bras. It currently brags of a pile of over 18,000 bras weighing over one ton. That's a lot of lingerie. Among those thousands of discarded bras are those owned by actresses Drew Barrymore and Julia Roberts, and thousands upon thousands of less famous women. Now, cross to the other side of the High Line, looking out at that 13th Street opening, looking out at the Hudson River. From here, you can see the delicate, rusty gateway of a massive Pier 54, one of the few structures still standing from the collection of waterfront structures called the Chelsea Piers. These ornate piers once ran all along the waterfront, welcoming the great ocean liners of a hundred years ago. To build these heavy-duty piers during the first decade of the 20th century, the city actually did something kind of extraordinary. They eliminated land at this spot, moving the shoreline inland to its present location. This allowed the piers more boarding space for ships of the White Star and Cunard lines. In 1915, the RMS Lusitania left from this pier, Pier 54. It never arrived at its destination, torpedoed by a German U-boat off the coast of Ireland, killing almost 1,200 passengers. Once you've soaked in the view here, let's meander along, underneath the second of only two new constructions allowed to hang completely over the elevated railroad. Simply called the High Line Building, or 450 West 14th Street, this office tower was built atop a pre-existing structure, the John Morrill Meat Manufacturer, built in 1936. John Morrill is the longest continually operating meat manufacturer in the United States, although they haven't been around here for quite some time. Stroll underneath the building and hit play when you get to the other side, on 14th Street, looking east. Looking east up at West 14th Street, you can easily see where industrial architecture and modern retail boutique clash to define the character of the neighborhood today. One of the more interesting components of this street during the 1980s and 90s was the sight and smell of meat manufacturing placed next to underground nightclubs. There was literally blood and glitter in the streets. Under the middle awning at the southeast corner of Washington and 14th once sat the nightclub Mother, perhaps best known for its outrageous series of Tuesday night parties under the name Jackie 60. Once a year, they would throw a particularly flamboyant event here called A Night of a Thousand Stevies, an annual tribute to Stevie Nicks where everybody, and I mean everybody, came dressed as Stevie Nicks. Unusual nightlife thrived in this area. One block down on 13th Street was the gay leather club The Lure, and another one at Little West 12th Street called The Mine Shaft was a provocative filming location for the 1980 Al Pacino thriller Cruising. By the way, the building that once housed The Mine Shaft a debauched and hedonistic foray into sexual fantasy with a well-regarded leather-only pirate's den, well, today it's a really delicious Thai restaurant. Now, look back over to the west side of the High Line, where you can see another great pier structure, Pier 57. This structure is newer than Pier 54. It was built in 1952 and notable for standing aloft on floating concrete boxes. As you can tell, this building was once the property of New York's old Department of Marine and Aviation. Head along the High Line now until you get to the intersection of West 15th Street. The path splits here, so walk along the right side. At 15th Street, we are finally out of the meat district. Literally. We're now into cookies. 
The buildings surrounding you on either side and above the High Lane were once owned by the National Biscuit Company, known today by its cute shortened name, Nabisco. The metal overpasses you see on either side of the High Line were designed for products to be transferred between buildings. From ovens at this site, millions of vanilla wafers, fig newtons, and saltines were manufactured. It's said that the Oreo was even invented here. West 15th Street was once even referred to as Oreo Way. Not all of these buildings were originally built for Nabisco. The glorious silver overpass on the east side that hangs over West 15th Street, this was constructed when Nabisco bought the building on 14th Street. That structure was formerly owned by the American Can Company, who once held a monopoly on tin can manufacturing in the United States. On the west side of the High Line, you see an area of track that literally veers into a building. This is called the Southern Spur, and was used by National Biscuit to guide train cars directly in and out of the factory. You can still see the letters NBC on the wall here, definitely not the home of the Cosby Show. Now, pass underneath the next building, but keep on listening here. Perhaps take the lower level to look at the track that's embedded in the pavement. The building you are passing under was also a National Biscuit structure, refitted in 1932 to accommodate the new elevated freight railroad, However, in order to make way for tracks, builders tore out a portion of the building where Nabisco's first ovens from 1890 once stood. So as you pass underneath here, recognize that you are on pastry holy ground. Today, the structure on the east houses a portion of the Chelsea Markets, which opened in the 1990s as a retail complex and office building. At the time of this recording, there's a pretty spectacular piece of art on the underpass's west side called The River That Flows Both Ways by Spencer Finch, utilizing colors from the surface of the Hudson River. The name of the piece is derived from the literal translation of the original Native American name for the Hudson River. Now, get to the 16th Street intersection and stand on the west side. Here on the left is another ramp called the Northern Spur that pulled train cars right into that large beige building. This structure, which was built in 1917, was once owned by the Merchants Refrigeration Company. In an era where it was not convenient for anybody to really have a refrigeration system, businessmen like James and William Wills, the proprietors of Merchant Refrigeration, rented spaces out in this warehouse to a variety of businesses. This spur is particularly lush with a variety of flora that mimics the appearance of overgrowth. By the way, there's a public restroom over on the other side of the High Line if you need it. And this also will be the last time that 10th Avenue will be on your left side. Now, go up to the elevated seating area that hangs over where the High Line crosses 10th Avenue and take a seat. Overlooking the traffic of 10th Avenue as it zooms up north, this windowed section can feel pretty tranquil at times if it's not too crowded. A far, far cry from over 100 years ago in the days before the elevated line, when the avenue below was so clogged with traffic that it was referred to as Death Avenue. Imagine a never-ending chain of horse-drawn wagons and carriages, people with push carts, not to mention a freight train being drawn down through the streets, starting and stopping as freight was loaded and unloaded. And that was before the arrival of the automobile, which only made congestion worse. Regular pedestrians stood no chance. Hundreds were killed between the decades of 1880 and 1920. And there were plenty of pedestrians. People going to and from work, 
poor residents of the neighborhood and people who are arriving at markets in the surrounding area. Thanks to the West Side Improvement Projects completed in the 1930s, both trains and through traffic were lifted off the street, giving end to the morbid moniker of the avenue. When you're ready, walk up just a little bit to the High Lines intersection with West 17th Street. From this spot, you have a terrific view of the entrance of the modern Chelsea Piers, today a premier sports and entertainment complex built in the 1990s. But a hundred years ago, this was yet another colossal berth for the world's largest ocean liners. So yes, keep in mind all the chaos of Death Avenue and the West Side freight industry then, as you imagine a western shore of bustling piers that could hold up to 20 glamorous ocean liners. The pier that once sat at this spot of today's sports complex, the White Star Line Pier 59, awaited a highly anticipated visitor in April of 1912. The newly built RMS Titanic was to make her first docking in America at this port. Unfortunately, that great vessel smashed against an iceberg in the Atlantic Ocean on April 15, 1912. The survivors of the Titanic tragedy aboard the vessel Carpathia did arrive at the Chelsea Piers on April 18th, 1912, setting foot at Pier 54, which was that first pier that we saw down at West 13th Street. There they were met with tens of thousands of grieving New Yorkers still reeling from that unthinkable tragedy. Considering the truly moving history of this spot, am I crazy to think that that white building across from the Chelsea Piers looks a little bit like an iceberg? That's the IAC building, designed by Frank Gehry and completed in 2007. IAC stands for Interactive Corp., the Barry Diller-owned parent company that owns both Newsweek and Match.com. Between the IAC building and the High Line on the north side of the street is a building that holds a special place in my heart, so walk up a little bit up to West 18th Street. Next to the IAC building is the location of the former Roxy Roller Disco and Nightclub, it opened in 1978 as the place to get your boogie down in a pair of lace-up wheels. And during the 1980s, it was a seminal spot for early hip-hop and the advent of the breakdancing movement. By the 1990s, it had become a gay hotspot, finally closing in 2007. Soak in the views of these buildings as you walk up past the intersection of West 18th Street. Pass through a particularly narrow stretch of walkway and continue until you get to the intersection of West 19th. But on your way there, let's play a little game. Look out to the east, towards the Empire State Building. See if you can find the exact spot on the High Line where the four spires of the Theological Seminary's Chapel Tower line up directly with the Empire State Building in the distance, so that it looks as though the Empire State Building is literally sprouting out of this building that's a full 100 years older. A total photo op if you have a zoom lens, and a happy accident of New York architecture. Okay, just a brief stop here at West 19th Street, on the west side of the High Line, the Tan Building at 512 West 19th Street, south side of the street. Yes, another beige building. However, this one happens to house one of the cultural anchors of the neighborhood, the Kitchen, a non-profit artistic organization that has fostered creative performances since it was formed in the village in 1971. They moved to the spot in 1986 and bought the building the following year, a bold pioneer into a neighborhood overtaken by that time by automotive repair shops. 
1986, a New York Times article rather presciently remarked of their opening weekend, quote, the area may well be the next Soho, unquote. When you're ready, step up to the intersection of West 20th Street. At West 20th, take in the grand view to the east, and welcome to the old Chelsea estate of Clement Clark Moore. His grandfather was a veteran of the French and Indian War and built his lavish estate and sumptuous grounds here. He named the house Chelsea after a veterans hospital in London. By the 19th century, grandson Clement had a dilemma. The island of Manhattan was being sectored into a grid of rectangles by numbered streets and lettered avenues, a plan that would essentially chop up his family lands into city blocks. After some begrudging protest, Moore sold off his property by lots in anticipation of the new streets, with a caveat. His apple orchard was to be developed as an Episcopal theological seminary. The extraordinary block-long building you see to your right is that structure, the General Theological Seminary, built in 1827, with its beautiful and extraordinary neo-Gothic touches. By 1827, of course, Clement Clark Moore had already written the poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." Now, before we move on, take a quick gander at the warehouses on the left side of the High Line, the north side of the street. Several tons of uranium were stored in these warehouses as part of the top-secret Manhattan Project during the 1940s. Makes your skin tingle. Now, keep heading north and notice a great big stretch of old track laid out there to the right. You'll also pass a lovely wire sculpture by Sarah Z entitled Still Life with Landscape. You might see some birds on it. Head to the west 21st intersection and stand over to the right side, next to the church. This is a rather strange place for a house of worship. Here at the High Line in West 21st is the brick and limestone Catholic Church of the Guardian Angel, built in the 1930s, with the elevated railroad clearly in mind. The congregation formally met at a church further north, but it lay in the path of the new elevated line, so a new structure was built here. Imagine the freight trains on a Sunday morning rattling by the chancel windows of the church during worship services. Now head on up to West 22nd Street and take a seat on those sleek wooden bleachers to the left side. West 22nd Street is the unofficial birthplace of the Chelsea Art Gallery scene. Today, the area thrives with hundreds of galleries filling former warehouses. But the Dia Foundation must have gotten some curious glances when they first opened an exhibit space on this street in 1987. Other gallery owners soon followed, including Matthew Marks in 1994. His gallery is located just over the east side of the High Line, just a little bit out of view. But I'd like to turn your attention to another piece of art. On the wall to the right of the wooden seating area is what they would call a ghost sign, an advertisement from decades past now faded into the brick surface, giving only a faint hint of its former intention. This hint of a billboard advertised Towers Warehouses, Inc., U.S. Bonded. A bonded warehouse is one where businesses could store items for export without paying a duty. Below it lies the jarring phrase, Revs Cost, the tag of two renowned graffiti artists of the 1990s. Proceed now to the West 23rd intersection. If you're allowed, you may choose to luxuriate in the grassy lawn to the left of the High Line, 
staring up at the futuristic Neil Denari condominium warmly called HL23. But for a less robotic, more classic living experience, look to the east down West 23rd Street at the northeast corner of 10th Avenue. You'll see a building that seems to roll down the street without end, a tremendously large apartment complex called the London Terrace Apartments, built in 1931. At one time, London Terrace, which takes up an entire long block, was considered the largest apartment complex in the world. They were built by ambitious developer Henry Mandel, who purchased the land and casually cleared away 80 treasured old townhouses of the variety that still exist on the south side of the street. Mandel was heavily delayed in the construction of this complex due to one holdout, a feisty lady named Tilly Hart, who barricaded herself inside her brownstone in 1929 and refused to leave. Her plight drew crowds daily to the surrounding streets below. She was eventually evicted, and Mandel, possibly in spite, sat the cornerstone of the London Terrace on the exact spot of her demolished home. But Miss Hart had the last laugh. Within two years, in the clutch of the Great Depression, Henry declared bankruptcy. But the complex itself thrived in the coming decades, attracting singles and young families to the building by the 1960s. According to one resident quoted in the New York Times in 1967, quote, Oh, yes, that's where those airline stewardesses throw those wonderful parties, unquote. Let's continue this party with a leisurely sachet past the intersection of West 24th Street, pulling over to the right side when you get to West 25th Street. Watch out for traffic here, as it's especially narrow. At West 25th Street, there's a tan building, yes, another tan building, on the north side that's actually quite notable, although it may not look like much in this industrial landscape. This warehouse, built in 1927-28 for the R.C. Williams Wholesale Grocery Company, was designed by the great Cass Gilbert, better known, of course, for the Woolworth Building and the U.S. Supreme Court Building in Washington, D.C. The R.C. Williams business got its start from a very small grocery store down on Maiden Lane in 1809. But the family was clearly prosperous enough by the early 20th century to employ one of America's top architects. Now, if you're thinking, well, I mean, it's pretty, but kind of like, you know, blah in color. Gilbert himself was well aware of this. Simplicity was his objective here. He said, quote, There is something very fine about a great gray mass of building, all one color, all one tone, yet modified by the sunlight or shadow to pearly gray of wonderful delicacy, unquote. Well, let's walk up to West 26th Street to see what I would consider something a lot more dazzling than this building. But on your way there, pay heed to the large smokestack that stands between the two structures to your left. There's another terrific over-the-street seating area here on the right. But before enjoying that, look west, down West 26th Street, at the end of the block on 11th Avenue, the building with the graceful, rounded edges. This is one of my favorite buildings in New York. I can't really say why exactly, but it's the perfect example of how to throw a little class onto a functional building. This is the Star at Lehigh building, built in 1930-31 atop an old freight terminal developed by World War I colonel-turned-developer William Starrett and owned by the Lehigh Valley Railroad. 
The unique striped windows, the casual setbacks, and the overall grace of the structure made it a standout of its day. Trains could pull directly into the ground floor until the 1960s. Today, the building is home to the businesses of Tommy Hilfiger and Martha Stewart. When you're done with the Highline, a short detour down to 11th Avenue to admire this building more closely wouldn't be the wrong idea. So as we're getting near the end here, you'll notice that the Highline starts to flatten out a bit with more verdant and seemingly random selection of plant life spreading up out of the tracks. Imagine what it would have been like to sneak up here during the 1970s and 80s, discovering an accidental garden growing on top of the most forlorn structure in the city. Let me know when you get to West 28th Street, right past the building on your left with all the barred windows. This brick structure on the west side of the High Line is mostly typical of the great many buildings in the area. We've talked about a lot that were associated with one particular industry or business, but this building has been associated with a host of different clients, including the DeVoe and Reynolds paint manufacturer, the West Virginia Pulp and Paper Company, and the Olympic Corrugated Container Corporation. For decades, a simple unsung factory, today it sits next to the luxury Mexican import Hotel Americano. Now, my few final words here will be about a building that will begin to appear on the right side of the High Line, over on 10th Avenue. You can keep listening to this and just stroll for the rest of the way along the completion of the High Line. As you make your way past the 28th Street intersection, you might be able to see a rather abused-looking beige structure. Yes, another beige structure over there on 10th Avenue. This building takes up two blocks. This is the Morgan Processing and Distribution Center for the U.S. Postal Service. 2.2 square feet of mechanical mail distribution. Basically, this is where most New York mail goes to get routed. In 2001, the building was caught up in a bioterrorism scare when it processed mail that had been laced with anthrax, and the building had to be shut down and decontaminated. The most attractive part of the building may be its rooftop, which received a very Highline-like revamping to become New York's largest green roof in 2009. As you'll see when you near the end of the tour, the Highline once went into the building itself, but that entrance has been long sealed up. But it's what used to sit on the spot that ties back to the beginnings of the history of the High Line. The distribution center stands on the spot of the 30th Street Depot of the Hudson River Railroad from all the way back to the 1850s. Steam trains for the Hudson Railroad would travel down the length of the island and disembark passengers here at the station. When Cornelius Vanderbilt bought the Hudson River Line, the west side tracks were then converted to freight-only transport. Human passengers, meanwhile, took the trains to the newly built Grand Central Depot on 42nd Street. But before Vanderbilt came along, this special depot had a proud and very tragic distinction. On February 15, 1861, Abraham Lincoln and his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, made their first appearance in New York here as the newly elected president and first lady. He was greeted by thousands of well-wishers in the street and escorted by carriage that took him downtown to the famous Astor House. And it was from this very same train station, four years later, on April 25, 1865, that thousands of mourners gathered as the body of President Lincoln, which had laid in state at City Hall the previous day, departed the city aboard his funeral train for a cross-country trip to his hometown of Springfield, Illinois. A plaque addressing this was placed on the building in 1941. You can find it near the building's entrance at 30th Street and 9th Avenue. 
As a side note, less than a day after Lincoln's body left New York, his assassin and frequent actor upon the New York stage, John Wilkes Booth, well, he himself was killed in Northern Virginia. And so we're at the end of this phase of the Highline walking tour. There'll be a lot of excitement happening from this point northward as the Hudson Yards project gets underway. The third phase of the Highline is yet to begin as of the date of this recording. From here, I have a few recommendations. If you haven't yet listened to our regular podcast, episode 135, on the history of the Highline, you could do that now. Perhaps walk back down the Highline if you're not completely sick of my voice yet. You can also get off at the 30th Street entrance here and look at some of the things I spoke about from a different angle. You know, actually, I recently took a gallery tour of the Chelsea art scene just a week ago, and I absolutely loved it. There's so many galleries in almost every nook and cranny of the neighborhood these days that no tour is ever the same from the week before. I highly recommend this, and I'll put some information on the blog. Or if you just want to get out of here, you can walk over just a couple avenues and catch an A, C, or E train at 34th Street Penn Station. So thank you very much for coming along on this tour of the High Line. This was an experimental podcast, and hopefully Tom and I will debut similar shows like this in the future, uh, maybe even for sale on iTunes and or, or in other places. So please send your suggestions, whether you found this tour helpful, things that might improve future tours. I greatly appreciate it. The blog is BoweryBoysPodcast.com, and we are also on Facebook and Twitter at Bowery Boys. Thank you very much for listening. Have a great spring and a great New York week, whether you live here or not. When you visit a state as big and diverse as Texas, there are a million different trips you can take. Let's say you've got an appetite for whitewater kayaking. You can get your own. So this is why they call it Devil's River. Trip to Texas. Or maybe you have an actual appetite. I'll take a pound of brisket, six ribs, uh, three links of sausage, and a, a piece of pecan pie. Trip to Texas. Go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.